Okay. Good to get a little social there. So now we're caught up. All right. Esther chapter three tonight. Esther chapter three. Um, If you recall our last lesson on Esther chapter two, that was somewhat of a triumphant one. You remember that uh, Esther went from being virtually a nobody to rising to become the queen of all Persia, which is quite amazing given that she was a Jew given that she didn't have any means to rise to this by way of wealth. And so that's pretty exciting. It was uh, an uplifting thing, a good time for the Jews when we last met. But now we come to chapter 3, and it's a little less exciting, a little less triumphant. In fact, it's the exact reverse. Now we come to a troubling chapter. We're going to read about an event that changes Esther's outlook from good to bad in no time flat. Injustice is going to quickly flood the story in chapter 3, and it will seem on the surface as if God is doing nothing. Just on the surface. Of course, we know that not to be true, but it's going to look that way. And, uh, and with that in mind, I can think of no greater introduction to tonight's passage than the first few verses of the book of Habakkuk. You don't have to turn there, but just listen to these words. They're found in the first chapter, verses 2 through 4. And there the prophet writes, How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Those words, I think, perfectly convey the thought that we're going to be studying tonight in chapter 3. If we had a bulletin, this was the morning service, I think I'd put those as my call to worship verses because they summarize it pretty well. Um, Here we see that Mordecai uh, stops a major plot against the king, a plot to take his life, but he's never rewarded for it. And then later on we see this man named Haman, a wicked pagan, rise to power and threaten to wipe out the entire Jewish people, including Esther herself, all within the course of one chapter. So the question after we're going to finish reading all of this is, where is God? You might know from Esther that his name is not mentioned personally at all throughout the entire book. It's as if God is absent by name. Of course, we know he's not really absent. He's at work in all things. But if we were just to stop where we're going to stop tonight, you might be tempted to think so. And so we'll have to ask the question, where is God in the midst of injustice in this world? We'll have to see what the answer to that question is. But for now, I'd invite you to turn to Esther, actually, chapter 2, verse 19 and 23. Actually, we're going to be spending the most of our time on chapter 3, but I'd like to just tie in the end of chapter 2 with it because it's very much related in theme. So if you just flip back a little bit to Esther 2, verses 19 through 23, we'll start there. And it says, when the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do. For she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions, as she had done when, she was, when he was bringing her up. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, 
The two officials were hanged on a gallows, and all this was recorded in the book of Annals in the presence of the king. Okay, so, as you, as you read that story, and as we move on to the stuff that's going to follow, it almost would seem like this is out of place. You know, we're talking about Esther's rise to power and, and prestige in the kingdom, and then this person Haman's going to come along who threatens that. And then in the middle, there's this random story about Mordecai stopping this plot, but he's not rewarded for it, and then it just kind of moves on. And you wonder, what does this have to do with anything? In fact, I was wondering, should I just tackle this part tonight, or should I bound it together with chapter 3? Because I don't know how, how it fit together, at least I didn't initially know. But we'll see that there's something greater going on here. This isn't irrelevant. In fact, there is a, a great purpose why this act is being described for us. Okay? Uh, and in fact, verse 19 describes a situation which will eventually have great bearing on the Jews' fate. So although uh, King Xerxes had already chosen Esther to replace Vashti, we look in this passage and we see a second gathering of virgins taking place. You see that in verse 19. No one knows for sure why they're getting together. Some have said uh, maybe this is the second you know, batch of women that have come in and they don't realize that Esther's already been chosen, but women were coming from all around the kingdom. It took a while to get there. Maybe they're just coming now. Uh, we don't know. Uh, but that's not really important for the story. Um, what's important is that during this time, Mordecai is sitting at the king's gate. And by doing so, he's able to keep in touch with Esther and vice versa. Okay, so while all this is taking place, maybe the reason why it describes the virgins gathering for a second time is uh, Esther is among those. And they're in a place that's very close to the king's gate, so that enables him to be able to talk with her or have her talk with him. And that's important for what happens next. We see verse 21 tells us that while Mordecai was waiting by the gate, he overheard a plot by two of the king's officials who seemed to have been on duty there to assassinate the king. Either he heard it himself or he overhears somebody else talking about it and he finds this out. Apparently, the king had a lot of enemies. We know this from history because, in the end, he was really assassinated. Okay? These guys weren't successful, but we know from other records of history outside of the Bible that another pair of individuals were successful in carrying it out. So apparently, this guy wasn't very popular. All right? A lot of people were fighting for his position. Um, but in this case... Um, they were trying to carry this out, and Mordecai intercepts it, and he relays it to Esther, who tells the king, who gives credit to Mordecai. Okay? Or, I, I mean, Esther gives credit to Mordecai. And so the king investigates it, or he sends some men on that, that case, and, and when it's found out to be true, both criminals are hanged on the gallows. So we see that Mordecai's name is written down. He, he's the one who stopped this thing. He probably risked his own life to do so. To find out about this, giving people's names, maybe they would have traced it back to him. He is the one who stops this plot from, from taking the king's life, and the king doesn't even reward it. And, and you're wondering, as you read this, what's going on? Not only where, why is this included, but how is it that a person as righteous as Mordecai is being overlooked? And, and you know, as you read the final verses of this section, it says that it's written down in the book of the Chronicles for this king, in his presence. So he has two reminders. Esther, Esther tells him, and, and then it's written down in his presence. Why does he not get it? Why has he failed to reward him? On the surface, it looks like God is asleep. It looks like God is not acting on Mordecai's behalf. And Mordecai could have been very tempted to wonder at this point, where is God in all of this? It seems like the righteous are always the ones who enjoy the benefits. They get recognized while the righteous do not. Do you ever feel that way? That at work, 
or among your friends or whatever, uh, that, that the, the unrighteous are, are the ones that often grab for the higher positions. And somehow they get noticed above you. It, despite you're trying to be a good Christian person, despite trying to be humble about it, not trying to lie in what you do, or, or be uh, you know, arrogant about the way you do your work, sometimes it just seems like the unrighteous are always the ones that get to be promoted, or the ones that get recognized, while God's people get neglected. Sometimes even um, chastised. Sometimes um, cut down. Okay? That's what's going on here. So let's move on to Haman's plot, and I'll, I'll show you how this is all related. Now we get to chapter 3. Verses 1 through 15 read, After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. And all the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel or pay honor to him. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but refused to comply. He refused to comply. Therefore, they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, they cast the pur, that is the lot, in the presence of Haman to select a day and month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There are certain people dispersed and scattered among all the peoples of the provinces of your kingdom whose customs are different from those of other people and who do not obey the king's laws. And it's not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. So if it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And I will put 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men who carry out this business. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Then on the thirteenth day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned, and they wrote out in the script of each province and in each language of the people all Haman's orders and the king's satraps and the governors and the various provinces and the nobles and the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and little children on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that they would be ready for that day. Spurred on by the king's command, the couriers went out and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. Okay. I know that was a long passage, but that was the whole story. I wanted to read it together. Here we have a troubling thing. Okay. If you were just to read chapter 2, from where we left off last time, things are going wonderful. Esther is chosen out of hundreds, if not thousands, of women to be queen of Persia. She's elevated to this high state. Even if we read the first half of our story, uh, at the end of chapter 2, uh, um, sorry, not Haman, Mordecai discovers this plot and it seems like he should be elevated to a position of honor or at least given some reward. 
But then in an instant, things turn around to the exact opposite direction. So that now, not only is Mordecai overlooked, but another unworthy person is honored in his place. Who, by all other accounts, shouldn't have been elevated. If we're just going about, about it by righteousness sake. Okay? Judging by what we know of this man's character from the text... Okay. It doesn't seem like this kind of person should be somebody who should be getting all the rewards in life, all the high positions. But here we are. So what's going on? Well, we're introduced to this man named Haman. And uh, we're not told exactly how it is he came to power, what he did for the king, uh, if he had money, whatever. Um, but we are told his uh, line of descent it says he's son of Hamindatha, the Agagite. Okay. What does that mean? What can we learn from that? Well, if you would go back in your Old Testament uh, passages, you'd find that the name of Agag is actually a king that was um, named in the book of of 1 Samuel. And so we see that this individual, Haman, is a descendant of this king, or if not, uh, at least of the same people group. Okay, what does that tell us? Well, if we were to go back into 1 Samuel 15, we'd see that there is a very tense history between Israel and and King Agag and his people. Okay? In actuality, Agag was an Amalekite. So this individual Haman is actually Amalekite himself. And we see that uh, the Amalekites and the Israelites were bitter enemies for many, many years. You can listen to this passage. 1 Samuel 15, 1-3. This is with Samuel speaking to King Saul. He said, uh, I am the only one the Lord has sent to anoint you king. I'm sorry, I am the one the Lord has sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go attack the Amalekites and destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men, women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. So that was Samuel's command many, many years ago to King Saul. Another interesting detail about our Esther story is that actually... Mordecai is a Benjamite, and King Saul was also a Benjamite. So here you have two descendants, you know, after many, many years of Saul and King Agag. Okay, so what happens here? King Agag Agag appears in this story in 1 Samuel 15. Verses 7 through 9 says, Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur to the east of Egypt. And he took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. And all of his people he totally destroyed with a sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the cattle, the fatted calves and the lambs. And so what we see happens is Saul refuses to obey the command of the Lord. and He spares this king. And then Samuel has to come and confront him on it. And then it ends up that Samuel's the one who actually kills this king. But there's this bitterness that goes all the way back to this encounter between the descendants of Saul and the people of King Agag, where Saul, I'm sorry, Samuel struck down this king. And so when you see that, you see these descendants of both Mordecai and Haman, I think we're supposed to see that there is trouble brewing here. This cannot be a good matchup. So what we see happen is that as Haman is, is honored, uh, Mordecai refused to bow down to him. And we're not giving, given a very detailed reason, except that it says Mordecai was a Jew. And I think that's reason enough for us to believe that Mordecai did this for religious reasons, out of honor to God. Some people have tried to charge Mordecai with being arrogant, that he was just stubborn and he didn't want to bow to somebody who um, got the position over him. But what those commentators fairly recognize is that this is many years afterwards. This isn't just an immediate thing. 
So I think that's very unlikely. Plus, if you take into the, the, the general tone that our author here has of Mordecai, I don't sense that there's a negative tone that's being portrayed about Mordecai in this passage. I think we're meant to look up to him and that this is something he's doing well, something that he's standing uh, his grounds on. And maybe it's, it's a difficult thing. Maybe some Jews felt that this was okay to bow to Haman. It's one of those passages, I think, where, um, where we, we are meant to see that other biblical principle, where if you're doing something against your own conscience, then to you it is sin. Whether it was absolutely sin for all Jews to bow down to Haman, we don't know. Because in all likelihood, uh, Mordecai probably would have bowed down to the king as well. But for him, he would had something uh, wrong in his mind about this, so he refused. He didn't want to do anything that uh, contradicted his, his faith in God or his worship in God. And so he refused. And so we see that uh, Haman's servants take notice of this. And before it really escalates, they try and talk to him. They say, listen, Mordecai, uh, are you sure you know what you're doing here? Why, why do you keep refusing to obey the king's commands? Even before they tell Haman, they kind of try to reason with him or ask him what he's doing. But he refuses to comply. And he just simply says, I am a Jew. I refuse to do this. And so eventually, seeing what Haman's going to do, these servants go and tell him. And of course, you can imagine Haman was furious. Here's a man we learn that is entirely in, uh, built up in his pride. He was not going to allow himself to be dishonored in any way. And so he was going to make an example out of Mordecai. Haman used Mordecai's own, own words against him, actually. By giving away the fact that he was a Jew... Haman went and used that detail against him so that he wasn't going to just punish Mordecai. He was going to punish his entire family for this act of disobedience to Haman. So Haman decided that he was going to wipe out the entire, entire excuse me, Jewish nation. Haman was motivated by pride. He was determined in his heart that no Jew would show him up and he would pay back Mordecai in this way. So Haman proceeds on with his plan. That's what we see next in this passage. He um, waits for an opportune time. And because he's a superstitious person, it says he casts the lot. And it says he casts the pur. And there's going to be a reason why it, it describes it in the original language for us. It's because that's going to be the, uh, the root for this celebration of Purim. Okay? Purim being the plural uh, form of the pur, which is their lot. And so uh, the event that the Jews celebrate to this day of the deliverance over Haman is ironically called this, uh, this name, which simply means Lot. Because here we see Haman is going to cast the Lot to figure out when they're going to destroy the Jews. God's going to turn it around and use it as the day that he saves the Jews. Okay? So we have this first month that uh, is called Nisan in verse 7. That's the equivalent of March uh, and April, kind of like half of March, half of April. If I could show you a Jewish calendar here, um, that's how it would line up. And it was looked upon by Persians as the time for determining the right moment for carrying out future actions. So in this month, it says Haman and his associates cast the lot to determine what date he should kill the Jews. Now, nobody really knows exactly what the lot is. Maybe you've looked this up in a Bible dictionary before. Maybe you've studied it. I don't know. Um, but some have tried to draw the analogy between the lot and dice. And that's about as good as an analogy we're going to get. Maybe either throwing dice or drawing straws. In some way, um, this was a random act that was viewed as being not so random by the person who threw it. Usually it was uh, associated with a divine decision so that people in foreign countries would throw this lot, whatever it was, if it was to be thrown. And... Uh, 
And, and from that, they would determine that the gods were telling them to do such and such. The Bible tells us that the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So that even things that are viewed to be by chance are actually by God's direction. We'll find that to be true here. So whether it was drawing straws, maybe it was um, you know, dice, we don't know. I saw one illustration uh, somebody drew online of Haman throwing these little stones onto a giant board that had all the different dates on it. And so whatever dates it would land on, that would be the, the date of the year that he would pick to destroy the Jews. I don't know how it, it happened, but we know that this was some sort of thing that he used to determine the date. And since he viewed that it was something from his gods, he viewed it as a done deal, something that he didn't have to worry about. And so when we look at what date is actually drawn, we see that it's the 12th month, the month of Adar that is selected. And, and that actually goes all the way around the Jewish calendar. It's 11 months later. So that's probably not what he's expecting. He was probably hoping for a sooner date. In fact, that's the longest possible duration he could have picked. But he figures their fate is sealed. No worries. What he doesn't know is that God's going to use this period of time as the exact amount of time that he needs to deliver his people from this dreadful act. So he casts the lot, and this is the date that's chosen. It would have been around mid-March okay, when uh, he would have selected to destroy the Jews. Now, after this has happened, he only needs the permission of the king to be able to carry it out, of course. Okay? And he wanted to get his plan in order before he went and told the king what he had in mind. Now, the big question comes, how do you convince a king? And I don't care how wicked of a king you are. How do you convince a king to wipe out an entire people group? Just out of the blue, without ever discussing it before, uh, just in one conversation. How is Haman going to pull that off? How is he successful? Well, Haman is quite clever. He appeals, it seems, to two things. Uh, the king's greed and then also to the king's um, desire for power. So we read in these verses, in verses 1 through 15, that uh, he offered him this large sum of money. And if you were to figure out how, how much that many talents was in silver that he was offering to the king. It was something I read like 300 tons of silver. And commentators have wondered about that. How could he have offered 300 tons? To put it in perspective, it was two-thirds the amount of the income for the year of Persia that he was offering. Even if Haman is from a rich background, people have wondered how could he possibly have offered so much money. It's doubtful that he would have had so much money at his disposal. One way to understand it is that perhaps he was thinking that once all these Jews were destroyed, they're going to plunder them and that would have been the source of this income. And that would have worked out. But we see no matter what the case is, that the king declines it. The king says he's so uh, okay with this idea. This is what's amazing. He's so all right with this idea that he says, you keep your money. That's fine. You just go ahead and do what you want. Well, why is the king convinced then? If it's not the money, how is he convinced? Well, as we were saying, it's, it's his appeal to power. And what Haman does is he appeals to the king in such a way as to portray these people as being um, evil, just through and through, being selfish, wicked people who want nothing more than to take the king's place, to, to plot against the king, um, people who are troublemakers, people who don't obey the king's laws. He stretches the truth. He, what he says is there's a certain group of people that don't obey the king's laws. And, and we can look back and that and say, sort of. The king did issue this law to bow down before Haman, but that's about it. We're not aware of any other laws that the Jews disobeyed. But he takes that small bit of truth 
and exaggerates it to such a, a, a great degree that he's essentially appealing the same way as the advisors did in chapter 1. You remember back then when um, Queen Vashti refused to appear before Xerxes, his advisor said, you've got to do something about this or else there's going to be utter chaos. And all the women in the nation, all the wives are going to rebel against their husbands. It's going, to, it's going to be crazy. And you don't want to allow this to happen. That's what Haman says here. You don't want to allow this kind of thing to take place. You don't want these people to be allowed uh, to live. They will create utter chaos. They will rebel against you, create an utter disaster. So we better destroy them. And for whatever reason, the king is all right with this. We scratch our heads at that. How is that possible? How, how could one man just convince a king to destroy them all? What's amazing to me is he doesn't even name them. Look back at, at, at uh, the passage there. Never once does he say that the people he's intending to kill are the Jews. Okay? Uh, maybe he knew that uh, King Xerxes was aware that Mordecai was a Jew. And, and if you would have mentioned the name Jew, a light would have gone off in, in Xerxes' head and said, wait a minute, uh, wasn't that just the guy who saved my life? Maybe that's why he's so careful. Maybe he's... Well, Haman doesn't know that Esther's a Jew, so that's not the reason. But, but he's very careful to just be very vague about it. And for whatever reason, this plan works. The king goes along with it. He gives him his signet ring, which is essentially a blank check. It's like giving him his signature and saying, here you go. Here's my signature. Just apply it to whatever you like. If you want to go kill people, fine. That's great. I'm for it. In fact, you take it with you. Whatever else you decide about it, whatever you think you need to carry this out, I'm all for it. And we look at that and we wonder how that could happen. How could God allow a wicked king to be so careless? And here's where our trust in the promises of God really comes to the surface. How, how could God allow a person like Haman to rise to power in place of Mordecai, how could Haman come up with such an evil plot and how could the king go along with it without even asking who he's killing? Or why? So the implications of all this are quite frightening, as you might imagine. Put yourself in Mordecai's shoes. Now Mordecai's life is in danger. In 11 months, he's going to be killed. And Esther as well. All the residents of Susa are condemned to death. And not only that, it says that an edict goes out to the entire Persian Empire. So if you've read the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, okay, any work that was done back in the land of Jerusalem to kind of rebuild and reestablish that as a homeland, they're going to be wiped out too. It's not just in central Persia. It's everywhere. What's going on? Well, we're going to have to wait until future chapters to find out what's going on. So you'll just have to be a little patient, I guess. We'll see how God works through all of this. But imagine right now that you don't know the end of the story and you just had to stop here. What are we to learn from this passage if we just stopped? One thing I think we are to learn here is that at various points in our life, it's all too easy for us to assume that God is somehow absent or indifferent to the injustice that's happening around us. Think of all the things that were happening in Esther's story. We already went over them. Mordecai stopped the plot. He wasn't rewarded. Somebody else was rewarded in his place. This person wasn't a nice person by any stretch of the imagination. He plots against the Jews and he's successful in plotting and the king doesn't even have the foresight to stop it. How is that just? How could God allow such a thing? It could have been all too easy for Mordecai to wonder. In the words of Jeremiah 12, verse 1, 
You are always righteous, O Lord, when I bring a case before you. Yet I would speak with you about your justice. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless live at ease? But that's not all. Not only is an undeserving Amalekite honored, but he's also motivated by his pride to go and wipe out anybody he doesn't like. It's not too hard for us to start thinking some of the same thoughts that Mordecai might have been thinking when we look at the world today. We see so many examples of where God's people are threatened and the wicked prosper. And to be honest, we have to go outside of our own country to get real solid examples of this. I'm not saying that people aren't persecuted in the United States. I know they are. But if you want to talk about a nationwide thing going on, then I would invite you sometime to just go to some websites that talk about this for recent news or get some newsletters that speak of this. One that comes to my mailbox and that I, I see online a lot is Voice of the Martyrs. And, uh, and that's a really good resource. If you go to persecution.com, here are some of the stories that I, per, uh, that I pulled up from, from there. One story featured on their website this week tells how 90 Christians were arrested. This is today we're talking about. In the country of Eritrea in the past two months, as authorities have continued a campaign against Christians that began back in December. Six of the 90 have been released, but the location of the other 84 is still unknown. Christian groups that do not belong to organized churches in that country are banned entirely. And so several thousand Christians have been arrested there just in the last five years. In China, this is another recent story that was just up on their website as of, I checked it yesterday. Um, house pastor uh, in China, Xi Enhao, was sentenced to two years in a labor camp last month. Uh, pastor Xi, who serves as deputy chairman of the Chinese House Church Alliance, was charged with illegal meetings and illegal organizing of venues for religious meetings. So the police department um, ordered his church to stop meeting. They confiscated the church's car, their musical instruments, their choir robes, as well as all of the money that has been donated to them in the past few months. In Pakistan, just back in March 21st of this year, two Christian men were killed by gunmen who walked into an open-air prayer meeting and opened fire on the congregation. And those two who were killed were Johannes Mashith, 47, and Jamil Masith, 22. They were guilty of nothing more than being a believer in Christ. And we might be tempted to ask, as we hear those stories, where is God in all of this? In our own country, where we see a trend of less and less sympathy towards Christians, in a world that seems to be getting more and more wicked and becoming more and more hostile to God's people, we wonder, what is God doing? And if we truly want to know the answer to that question, we need to only look back at the remaining chapters of Esther. For there will be a lesson in those final chapters. That all these seeming out-of-control random events are not actually random or out-of-control all, at all. And actually, God is in control of everything that's happening. Whereas it may look like God somehow wasn't around when uh, he didn't cause Mordecai to be rewarded for saving the king's life. In actuality, his act will, re will be rewarded later on at just the right time to cause the king to rethink his edict against the Jews. And even though it may seem like a terrible act of misfortune that Haman becomes second to the king, in actuality, this isn't a mistake on God's part at all. For it's only through Haman's rise and later fall that Mordecai is able to eventually take Haman's place as second to the king. And the Jews are given favored status in the kingdom, all because of the king's reaction to Haman's evil plan. Uh, 
If we read the end of the chapter, we find that these seemingly out-of-control events actually will bring greater blessing to God's people than there could have possibly been had they not occurred at all. But reading chapter 3 alone, you wouldn't know that. You couldn't know that. If you didn't know the end of the Esther story, there is no way that you could predict that these events were going to turn out the way that they could. No way to predict it. And yet, that's just the very point of our lives. We don't see the end of our lives, the last few chapters as they were, either. It's as if we are stuck at chapter 3, except that we don't know the ending. And so often it can be easy for us to look at the events that are happening to us and say, why are the wicked allowed to prosper? God, why are the wicked people that I know, the unbelievers of this world, allowed to triumph while I am left without being recognized, while I am left um, not being well regarded? Why is it that the arrogant are the ones that prosper, the ones who get all the attention? Why is it that so much wickedness is allowed to exist in this world so that God's people are threatened in many countries? We have to remember that God is always working through the evil we endure, even if it's impossible for us to see how. Let me say that one more time. This is the main point. God is always working through the evil we endure, even if it's impossible to see how. Our charge tonight is to have faith in God's character and to have faith that he is faithful to his promises, even when it doesn't seem like it's so. And often, and I think this is a point that I heard from Dr. Magnum uh, this t- two weeks ago at Pinebrook, that faith isn't, often, isn't just um, belief in the absence of evidence, but it's belief in spite of what we see a lot of times. Not just in the absence of it, but in spite of th- some things that would lead us to the contrary. So my charge to you tonight is, no matter what situation you find yourself in, whether it's today or whether it's the future, if ever you're wondering where is God in all of this, remember the story of Esther. How he used even the casting of a lot of a certain day to bring about deliverance. How he used Haman's second position to bring Mordecai to that position. How he used their, uh, the whole nation's uh, lives being at stake to raising them to being a favored status in the kingdom. And in your own life, God can use the situations that you're going through for a greater good. That's where the verse that says God works all things out to those who are called according to his purpose really means something. So let's remember God's faithfulness in times when it's most difficult. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the story of the book of Esther. And here we see a lot of injustice being done. But God, thank you that you've given us the entire book, the entire story, so that we can see the end, even when Mordecai or Esther maybe didn't. And Lord, thank you for that end of the story, recognizing that in the end, the wicked do not triumph. In the end, your kingdom always reigns. Help us to be encouraged by this fact. Help us not to be ever uh, tempted to doubt your goodness or doubt your faithfulness, for you are always faithful, even when we are faithless. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.